I invite you to open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Romans. We are in chapter number one, beginning a new series in the book of Romans. Do you have your copy of God's Word? I hope that you do, and we're in Romans chapter number one. If you'd like to uh, do this, out in the foyer today, you'll find for sale a, a little paperback copy of just the book of Romans. And it's uh, laid out in a devotional uh, note-taking pages with it. And so that you can use it devotionally, take notes, things that God says to you. You can use it to take sermon notes. There's some empty pages in the back to keep some notes if you'd like. And we're going to be wearing this book out. And uh, in the next few months, you might instead use your electronic version. That is fine. You may carry your uh, Bible. That's fine, too. Whatever you want to do. But I just wanted to make those available. And many of you have purchased those and found them to be helpful. Also, these book, books uh, are the same translation that I'll be using as we walk through the book of Romans together. Romans chapter 1, if you open your Bible, we've got a lot to cover today. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we look at this passage together today, uh, let me just begin us with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would speak to us today, and I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray that today we would focus to hear you. I pray that we would set aside the things that want to distract us, and Father, that we might listen to your voice. Heavenly Father, I pray that, God, we would turn from our sin and confess our sin and be honest with you. And Lord, I pray that today we'd be encouraged in our faith. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to do business with our lives today. We need you. We can't live this life without you. Without your guidance, God will make a mess of our lives. So, God, we turn to you. We need you. We believe this word is your inspired word. We ask you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look in the book of Romans together, um, first of all, Romans, uh, I just want to give an introduction. Today's sermon would be different than most sermons. And today's sermon is an introduction, so I'm going to give you a lot of background information, 
don't get discouraged by that. Or it's just, it's just good information that you need to know when we look at this book because we need to understand the context about why it was written and who wrote it and to whom is he writing and what is the purpose of this letter and what are some great truths that we find in it. And so let's look at that together. First of all, understand that this book in your New Testament, the book of Romans, is a letter. It is the longest of Paul's New Testament letters. It is uh, written by the Apostle Paul. He's probably writing from Corinth while he's on his missionary journeys. And he's making his way back to Jerusalem to take an offering there for the poor people living in Jerusalem. They're going through a much difficult time. He wants to get there before Pentecost to worship there in uh, Jerusalem. And he is uh, making his way, but he's delayed and he's in Corinth. And it's, he gives us some keys here in Romans by people that give greetings and what he has to say that obviously Paul is writing from Corinth. And uh, he tells us about that purpose. He uh, has collected this missionary offering from other Gentile churches in the region uh, on his missionary endeavors and now is taking it to uh, uh, Jerusalem. So it is, first of all, a letter. Now it's written, notice in verse number one, notice Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Letters in New Testament days begin with the author of the letter first. We kind of do it just opposite. I don't know why. But instead of saying who's writing the letter, we usually write the letter and sign our name at the end. But no, they put their name first and say, hey, this is Paul writing to you. Let me introduce myself. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You know about me. I know about you. I'm writing to you. And this is Paul to you. Notice in verse number seven, to all who in Rome, that's the recipients of the letter. He's writing to those who are loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace. I'm writing to you believers who are in Rome. Now, who is Paul? You all remember, but let's recall it together. Paul was formerly known as Saul of where, from where? Tarsus. That's exactly right. And he was reared in a Jewish home in Tarsus. It is a Roman Gentile city. He was a Roman citizen by birth. And he's also a Jew by birth. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Pharisee in the sect of Judaism. He is a, uh, a learned man, a great scholar, studied under some of the great theologians and scholars in all of the New Testament world in Jerusalem. He studied under the great Gamaliel, and he was excelling. He's a bright star in the academic and religious world. And he was brilliant man, Latin, fluent, Greek, fluent, Hebrew, fluent, Aramaic, fluent. He was a brilliant man, a great scholar, in, and uh, was excelling, and it was a rising star in Judaism. He was zealous for the law of God. He is very zealous for God's law. He loved the word of God. He loves the Old Testament. He studied it. He was a conservative, a Bible-believing, law-abiding, Jewish young man who was passionately in love with to, to know God, pursuing God, and, uh, and, so, and pursuing the law of God. And so he felt like in Judaism there was a threatening sect. There were followers of this prophet out of Nazareth in Galilee named Jesus who had been crucified on a cross, and 
they, he felt like they were just troublemakers and he wanted to eliminate them among Judaism. And he was following, uh, uh, he wanted to pursue and persecute those who were following Jesus of Nazareth. And he was in full agreement with the persecution that was breaking out. As a matter of fact, we find Saul identified whenever they're stoning Stephen to death, one of the first martyrs in the New Testament, they lay their robes at the feet while they're gearing up, picking up stones to kill Stephen in their anger uh, at the feet of young Saul from Tarsus. He took orders from the Sanhedrin, which was like the Supreme Court, and they were to arrest any of the followers of the way, and that's what they called Christians, followers of the way, and bring them in custody to be held in trial because of their insurrection and their uh, undermining of Judaism. This sent him on a faraway trip to Damascus in Syria to pursue, though, he had enhanced letters from the authorities to arrest those followers of the way, and he's on his way to Damascus. You know the story. Just outside of this great city of Damascus, hundreds of miles away from home. He encounters a bright light on the road to Damascus, and that bright light was a vision from heaven that knocked him to his knees. And Paul heard a voice, and those others traveling heard the sound, but Paul heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, by the way, would that get your attention, by the way? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But he said, you're persecuting Christians. You're persecuting the church, but you are persecuting me. It's a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he said to him, Saul, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go into Damascus, and it's going to be shown to you what you're to do. In the meantime, God shows up to a man of God, to a Christian man named Ananias, and he says to Ananias, he says, I want you to go over to Straight Street in the city, and there you're going to find, at the house of Judas on Straight Street, you're going to find a man there, and his name is Saul. And when you find this man, he is praying. And he's from Tarsus. And Ananias goes, oh, oh, I know about him, Lord. Ah, he's not a good dude. He's a bad dude. He wants to kill us. And, uh, he's, and he's come to cause us great harm. And he says, well, no, you don't know the full story, Ananias, because he's a chosen instrument of mine. And he has been set apart by me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He says he's praying there, Ananias, you go, I'm working. And Ananias obediently goes and he finds the house, Judas's house, on Straight Street. And he says, is there a man here by the name of Saul? And they said, yes, he's in the room praying. And, and so Saul was praying, trying to find God, blinded by the great light he had seen in the vision. And he comes to him and he preaches the gospel to him. And he calls on him to turn from his sin, to be baptized, confessing, and calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. And Saul indeed does that. Immediately there's healing for his eyes. And he's called by God. He's set apart 
by the Holy Spirit to a ministry that God had for him. My friends, if you know Jesus Christ, it's because of the work of God that he's done in your life. And he has saved you for a purpose and set you aside to carry out his will. He has a plan for you. Notice in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant literally means slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm called as an apostle. The word apostle means a missionary. I am sent by God. But not only am I sent, I'm a true apostle because I've seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. And not only am I sent, I'm set apart. I've been ordained by God for the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And I've been appointed uh, I've been appointed to this ministry to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Saul of Tarsus. And so he, he, Paul, Paul is writing. He was set apart as mission, many, some years later. The church in Antioch lays their hands on Paul. And are now they're not, not called Saul, but they're calling him Paul. And, and, and he and Barnabas go and sent out by the church of Antioch of missionary trips to take the gospel to those who've never heard and plant churches and encourage them. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing to them to tell them about his plans. Now, Paul's never been to Rome. He's never, uh, not as a missionary, he's never been to the church at Rome. He didn't help establish the church at Rome, although he, had, he has helped establish many churches uh, among the Gentiles, but not at Rome. And he tells them, he, the purpose of his writing this letter, one of the purposes is, he's writing to them to say, hey, look, guys, I've heard about you. I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love for God. And I'm writing to you to let you know that I plan to come and I can't wait to see you and I can't wait to fellowship with you. And I can't wait to teach and preach the gospel among you too and have fruit from the ministry there with you. And I can't wait to encourage you, and you encourage me, and I just can't wait to meet you guys. And so that's why he's writing them. He says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to take this gift, and after that, my plans are to go to Spain. And on my way to Spain, I'm coming to Rome because it's on the way, and I'm going to spend time with you, and maybe you can help me with some missionary money to go, and I'm going to go on to Spain to the furthest outreach of the Western Empire, and I'm going to preach the gospel there to people who've never heard it. Because that's what God's called me to do. Wow. So he writes the letter, the, the recipients of this are Roman Christians. And uh, they are meeting in large gatherings. They also meet in houses. The, the makeup of the congregation of the church is made up of Gentiles and Jewish congregations. There's a large Jewish segment in Rome. Now, there's been a lot of tensions in Rome because of uh, the relationship between Jews and the pagans and, and, and even about uh, the gospel of Christ. And uh, one of the emperors of Rome at one time turned out all the Jews and told them they all had to leave the city because of some of the infighting that had happened. But Paul is writing to them, this church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, it's not planted by Paul, nor was it planted by Peter. That's a false teaching that some have made. But the church of Rome, in Rome was a work of the Holy Spirit. And most scholars believe that what happened at the day of Pentecost with many turning, thousands turning 
to receive Jesus Christ and were saved and baptized and discipled in the early days of the formation of the early church because of the movement and Rome being the capital of all the known world, that many people would come from Jerusalem to Rome, Jews and eventually Gentiles, and they were preaching the gospel of Christ. And just like the church was planted in Antioch, so a grassroots movement by the Holy Spirit, the church was planted in Rome. It was not planted by the work of one apostle, but it was a work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There were some tensions, I think, that were always in Gentile churches that were mixed of Gentiles and Jews. And Paul addresses some of those tensions in this letter. The tension being, what's the difference between a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian? And what about paganism and our life in paganism before? And what about Jews? The law, and what about religious ceremonies of the law? What about festivals, and what about days, and what about the Sabbath? And what about the way that we do worship in the synagogue versus Gentiles who don't have that background? And so Paul addresses some of those things. What about circumcision? What about the Old Testament law? And so Paul deals with some of those things that might be tension in any mixed congregation. So this is the significance, this is the importance of this great letter. Now, it's not only a letter, it is a statement of faith. And many scholars have rightly said, boy, if this isn't, God, if, if this isn't Paul's doctrinal book, what is? And it, indeed it is. It's a great, rich, doctrinal book. It is not a systematic theology. It's not laying out everything Paul believes about all things Christology. But it is an exposition of what he believes about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants these believers in Rome not only to hear about him and know that he's coming to see them and preparing them for that, but he wants to give them an exposition of what he believes is the, the essentialness about the gospel in a powerful way so that they might read it and know it and know where he stands on these issues. So there's two big great things in this letter. And so we're going to look, overview this letter, right? And so two great things about this letter. Number one, the first part of the book, first 11 chapters, generally speaking, is how to be made right with God. Isn't that the big question? How am I right with God? The second question is, how do I relate to other people? And stay right with God. <laughs> and that's kind of what the law is, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. And so Romans deals with these two things. How to be right with God and how to live right with people before a holy God. The significance of the book, first of all, it is holy scriptures. It's inspired by God. Secondly, it's an exposition of the gospel of grace. Thirdly, it's been powerfully used in every generation. It's been personally used through the centuries and every generation in helping people understand the grace of the Lord Jesus. I don't have time to drill down on this, but I read a whole book about Mark, um, uh, on the life of Martin Luther while I was on vacation, and uh, I won't bore you with all of those details. But anyway, it was a great read, and uh, Martin Luther was a, a great man. He was, um, Martin Luther had this to say about Romans. He said, Romans really is the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel, worthy to be known uh, word for word. By the heart, 
every Christian should occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for your soul. Wow. Another great reformer by the name of John Calvin from Switzerland said, if we gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. British reformer William Tyndale, father of the English, trans, uh, English translations of the Bible, said in his prologue to the book of Romans, is the principal most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, a light and a way to the whole of Scripture. To his readers, he said, learn it by heart, memorize it. The more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it's chewed, the pleasanter it is. Wow. Romans is powerfully used to help Augustine of, of Hippo, one of the great Latin fathers, one of the early church fathers in 386 at 32 years of age, was convicted because of all of his immorality and sin, a professor of literature, lived an immoral life under stress and strain of all the chains of guilt and sin in his life. His mother was praying for him fervently and he heard a voice while he was trying to find some solitude in a garden one day, weeping about his sinfulness and his immorality and what a mess his life was. And he heard the voice of like little children singing. And they were saying, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. It seemed so odd to him. He'd never heard a song like that. He, he, what, what does this mean? He, he took it to mean, it must be God speaking to me. He went to the Bible. He opened the epistle of Paul to Romans in chapter 13. And his eyes fell on this verse. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh. Immediately he turned his heart to God and he was saved. He said, in that garden the chains of guilt fell off and I was born again. Wow. Martin Luther said it was profoundly used when he was studying. Martin Luther was not an immoral man, a very moral man. He, he, was, he lived in a monastery. He was a monk. He was trying his very best to live a right and a holy life. He was studying the scriptures, and when he thought about the righteousness of God, all he could think about was his own sinfulness. He was so consumed with his own sinfulness, he would spend hours and hours confessing all of his sins. He would ask other monks to listen to him confess his sins, and he would go on for hours and hours. He would tell them every little thing he'd ever done wrong in his whole life, and the things that he hadn't even done, but he'd thought about, and he just went, was going crazy with all of his thoughts. And finally, he was teaching in Wittenberg, on the book of Romans, and God somehow broke through with him, and he saw that the righteousness of God was not in a condemning way, but it could be made, he could be made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says it was like he was born again, and this passage was a gateway to heaven. Wow. John Wesley was soundly converted and became a, a believer, fa the, 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 the father of the Methodist movement, along with his brother Charles. Great men had been on a missionary journey all the way over here to Georgia and the United States and uh, back then back home in, uh, from America and was disappointed in the way all of that had gone. He met some Moravians there on a ship and, and they began to testify to them. They had a warm personal relationship with Christ that he didn't understand. It was all workspace and somehow in his mind. And while he knew about the grace of God, he didn't really know the grace of God. 
And he was invited to a Bible study by some of the Moravians were involved in. They were going to study the book of Romans together. And they read just the preface of Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And he says, in the middle of it, at 8.45 p.m., quarter before night, he says they were describing, Luther, the change that God works by faith in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, my heart was strangely warmed. And I felt... I did trust in Christ and that Christ alone was my Savior and salvation and assurance were mine and he had taken away all of my sin and I was saved from the law of sin and death and I was born again. Wow. When we read this book of Romans, It's a powerful book. And God wants to work in your heart as we study it together. Now, a quick overview. I'm going to have to be quick, right? All right. So this is an overview. First of all, the first 17 verses, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can find this outline on our website under resources, this outline. First of all, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse number 18, so verse number 16 and 17, look with me in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just, the righteous will live by faith. Now verse 18 That's the beginning of a new section, and that has to do with the wrath of God. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he outlines in here, God's wrath is being poured out on Gentile pagans and idolaters. God's wrath is also being poured out on moralists who judge other people but don't live right themselves. And God's wrath is also being poured out even on Jews who have the law. They think that they, are, um, they know everything, know his will, approve the things that are superior, uh, but don't live. He says, you are convinced you're a guide for the blind, a light in darkness. He says, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself. He's saying God's wrath is also on you because you too are sinful also. So this is his argument all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. For chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Then he begins, verse 21 is a new section, and he's speaking about the grace of God. It's a long section. Chapter 3, verse 21 Listen to what he says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. So it's the gospel of Jesus, the wrath of God revealed, and now the grace of God is being revealed. And that is through chapter number 8. Now let me just walk through some of those chapters. In chapter number 3, he tells us that he justifies the unjust. God justly unjustifies unjust people. God justifies unjust people, and he does it in a just way. Hmm. 
Secondly, he is just in what he does. He loves us. Thirdly, we must respond to him in faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is not righteous because he's Jewish. Abraham is not righteous because he was circumcised. Abraham is righteous because he believed God. And Abraham is the father for all who are uncircumcised and circumcised because the just will live by faith. That's the argument of Romans 4. Romans 5 is the argument that we have peace with God. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He also helps us understand through the one man, Jesus Christ, God has changed everything. Through the one man, Adam, sin came into the whole world. By the one man, Jesus, redemption takes place. In chapter number six, we are free to live a new life. You are slaves to the one you serve. You don't have to live in slavery to sin. You're free because of your baptism, because of your salvation. You are identified with Jesus Christ in the likeness of death, and you're raised to live a brand new life. You don't live, have to be in bondage to sin. Chapter 7 is the struggle between law and our sin nature. And that's what chapter 7 is about. Anybody know? And anybody here, you want to do right, but you don't somehow do it. That's the whole deal that he's arguing about in chapter 7. And who will set me free from this sin that's in me? He talks about the culprit. The culprit is not the law. The law is not bad. The law is holy. The culprit is sin in us. And so that's what we have to deal with. Amen? Now, chapter number 8 is life in the Spirit. You see, you're not, you can't live this victorious life by the works of the law or the works of flesh. You do it by walking in the Spirit. Chapter 8. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 has to do with Israel, the elective plan of God in Israel. And that's a very interesting section and may create some thought, thinking, or hard thinking on your part. But Paul loves Israelites, and he loves his own fellow Jews, and he talks about, has God forgotten about them, and will any of them be saved, and, and what about us, and God's election and providence in our salvation? And uh, so his sovereignty and the way that he works. And so we'll study that in chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so he talks about our worship with God, our living rightly, about being a part. How do we relate to each other in our relationships? How we're a part of the family of God, that we're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, that God has gifted all of us, and we need to use those gifts in his church. Secondly, how do we get along with each other? What we need to do to love and get along with one another. Not only that, how do we love our enemies? What do we do with those wretched folks that don't like us? Love them. How do we live out the gospel of love? And then, how do we get along with governmental authorities and politicians? Boy, do we need to look at that together today. And so then that's the will of God in our relationships. And then he will talk about how do we deal with a weaker brother or sister. And we have different issues and thoughts about social issues and how we relate to each other uh, and, and, and some of those uh, ethical issues, not 
and, and get along uh, right. And then finally, his travel plans and greetings, and he gives us in chapter 15, into 15 and 16. That is an overview from 36,000 feet, okay? Now, this book of Romans, in the last minutes we have, has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's think about it together. One of the great things that he teaches us that you have heard, but I want to go over because it's so fundamental. Number one, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter number 3, verse number 10, there is none, no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse number 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way. Jews have sinned, moralists have sinned, Gentiles have sinned. We're all sinners. Folks, I want you to understand one thing today. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. How many of you all in this room agree we are all sinners? Number two. Secondly, all of us are under God's righteous judgment. Is God right to judge us for our sin? Yes, he is holy. In chapter 3, verse number 19, listen to what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. You are under the judgment of God because you have sinned. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. You can't earn or work your way to a right relationship with God. You are rightly under judgment because of your sin. You cannot work your way into a right relationship with God. It's only found in Jesus Christ. The third aspect of the gospel is the wages of sin is death. Not only are you under judgment, you deserve to die. Chapter 6, verse number 23, says the wages of sin is death. Sin pays off in death. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die. The Bible says in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. Sin means to fall short. It means to miss the mark. It means you've missed the goal. You've missed the aim. You're less than what you should be. It means to miss the mark. Yesterday, we had axe-throwing competition after the men's breakfast. Now, that was a lot of fun. We had to sign waivers that we wouldn't hurt each other. <laughs> so axe-throwing is when you stand behind a line and you throw an axe at a target. I saw a whole lot of sinning happening yesterday. Guys missing the mark, if that's what sin is. It's when you miss the mark. It's when you go bowling and you miss the mark. I have a bowling story to tell you. I went with my family to Edison's a couple of years ago. Aaron, stop laughing. And I was, had my technique down, right? And so I'm walking... I hit the mark, 
I throw the ball, the ball stays on my hand, I go flying down the lane. <laughs> it was a thing of beauty. Now I'm in the middle of an oily lane, I stand up, I'm falling down. My oldest son who's there is laughing hilariously and he goes, please tell me we have that on video. <laughs> Now, praise God we don't have it on video. I was humiliated and aggravated and mad, and he says, is it too, is it too early to laugh yet? So anyway, uh, it's missing the mark. It's not funny, though. It's a failure, morally. The other word for sin is twistedness. Iniquity is the word. It means pervertedness, disturbedness, polluted ideas in our mind, our emotions. And because of iniquity, we call what is right wrong and what's wrong right because we are so upside down in our thinking. It's also called transgression, which means rebellion. It means a lawbreaker, a rule breaker, thumbing your nose at authority and rebellion. It's like the little boy whose mom told him to sit down. He said, no. She said, sit down. She said, no. He said, sit down. He said, if you don't sit down, I'm going to spank your britches. He sat down. I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Where do they learn that stuff? My little granddaughter yesterday, I saw her. I don't know where she learned this. No. Where'd she learn that? Okay. Oh, where'd she learn that? From her parents. <laughs> and her grandmother. And so uh, it's this rebellion <laughs> that is in us. You say, where did, where did my kid learn to be sinful? Well, listen, I love all my grandkids. I love every one of them, but they're all little sinners. All of them are. Because we all are. Look with me to Romans chapter 5. You say, well, where did this come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul deals with this. Look what he says in Romans chapter number 5 about our sin nature. In Romans chapter number 5, in verse number 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin... In this way, death spread, it's worse than any virus, to all people. Every person that lives on this planet, because all sinned. You're born a sinner and you live and act like sinners, because sin lives in us. The fourth aspect of the gospel is you can't save yourself. In chapter number 3, verse number 20, listen to what the scripture says. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. We conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Chapter 3, verse 28. See, you are saved, and the reformers talk about this, 
And it's true. You're saved by grace alone. You're saved by faith alone. And you're saved by Christ alone. It's sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus. You are saved for the glory of God alone. Your salvation is the work of God and His grace. Like the hymn says, For my pardon, this I plead, nothing but the blood of Jesus. August Toplady wrote, Not the labors of my hand could fulfill thy law's demands, could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Your salvation is by grace through faith and not of yourselves. Fifthly, God has demonstrated his love for us. In Romans chapter 5, even while you're a sinner and you're deserving of death and you can't save yourself, Romans chapter 5 tells us in verse number 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the sixth verse of Romans 5, listen to what he says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. What a statement. He died for the ungodly. That's you. Does God love you? Yes, he's demonstrated his love for you. There's some of you sitting in this room this morning, and you're saying, does God really love me? Yes, he loves you. How do you know he loves me, Pastor? Because God demonstrated his love for you. And while you were still a sinner, lost and deserving of hell, Christ died for you. The holy one died for you unholy ones. The just one died for you unjust ones. And the sinless one died for you sinful ones. Because there was no sin in him, but he died for you. And here's some of the big lies. Well, I'm just not good enough to be saved. What a joke. Of course you're not good enough to be saved. But Christ is good enough for you to be saved. Amen. So you stop. You're robbing the gospel by making it about you. It's all about Jesus. Amen. Second lie. Well, I just need to get my act together first. You can't get your act together. You're a dead mess. You're dead in your sins without Christ. Third thing. Well, you just don't know what I've done. I've done such bad things. God could never forgive me. What an arrogant statement that you would think your sin is greater than the grace of the Lord Jesus. His grace is greater. Where your sin abounded, God's grace super abounded. His grace runs deeper than your sin. And he can forgive you no matter what you've done in your life. The other really arrogant, stupid thing to say is, well, I'm not that bad. I'll just take my chances. No, you are all that bad. <laughs> the next point of the gospel is this, that God has provided atonement for our sin through Jesus' death. In Romans chapter 3, verse number 24 and 25. 
They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat. This translation uses the word mercy seat. I understand why they do it. I understand that that is what the word propitiation is often referred to, is the covering them over the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, a place of atonement. And Jesus is that atonement, yes. But I like the word propitiation better as a translation. The word expiate means to take or remove your sin from you, but propitiate means that a holy God is satisfied by a holy offering, and our sins are atoned for in Jesus Christ. It's a blood of the innocent presented for us, and that's how we are saved. Hallelujah. And finally, God's gift of grace is eternal life. We are saved by grace. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. It's grace. Sola gratia. It's grace. Grace alone. Grace only. Not works. And it's a gift. And it's eternal life. Your salvation in Jesus is eternal life. Not term life, not temporary life, eternal life. You see, you didn't earn your salvation and you don't keep your salvation. It's the work of God in you. Finally, you must believe in Jesus and confess him as Lord. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You know these verses. The Bible tells us that we must confess Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. We must believe in Him, trust in Him. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. There's a response to this great gospel, and a response is I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. And I confess with my mouth, He is Lord and Master. And I call on His name. Dear God, I'm a mess and I'm lost, but I'm calling on You. I believe Jesus is Your Son. God, forgive me. I give my life to You. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an introduction to the great gospel of grace in Romans. We'll study it together over the course of the months together. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, if there's one person here today who's never done this, never turned from sin and trusted Christ, I pray that today they might do that. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today, they might say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I made a mess of my life. I repent of my sins. I'm coming home to you. In Jesus' name I pray.